introduce this afternoon uh, today's uh, guest, uh, Professor uh, Christopher Lane of the uh, George H.W. Bush School of Government. You just took away Service. my best laugh line. The good Bush? What was your best well, laugh Well, because people always say from the George Bush School of Government, I always say, I want to make it clear it's the George H.W. Bush, but you took away my applause line. Okay. That's okay. That's life. That's, well, you know, that's uh, what happens. You know, I'm uh, Ed McMahon to your John McCarson. What can I say? Uh, in any case, uh, Chris is the uh, university distinguished uh, professor at AM and also uh, holder, uh, second holder of the Robert M. Gates Chair in uh, Intelligence um, and National Security Decision Making. Um, he's uh, the author uh, of The Peace of Illusions, um, and then a uh, debate book with uh, Brad Thayer. I can't even remember what the title of it is. It's sort of like Bambi American versus, Empire. Yeah, Bambi versus uh, Godzilla uh, <laughs> on the, uh, the American Empire. Um, Chris is uh, the author of uh, a number of uh, very high-impact uh, articles that uh, many of us uh, assign and some of us read in our classes. Um, and uh, so, in a sense, uh, Chris uh, needs uh, no introduction. Can I, can I say what you're presenting today? Or is sure, we're talking about the end of American primacy. Well, I was going to say not the topic, which is on the poster, but I was going to say uh, what's going to come out of it, unless I'm not allowed to. What, the book? Or yes. Oh, yeah, you can mention right. And uh, he's got a, uh, uh, a book project, uh, and we've got uh, three chapters or four chapters? You got three, one of which is very, well, you got one that hasn't been chapterized, but yeah, you got basically four chapters. Basically four chapters. So uh, uh, in any case, we're, uh, we're getting a little preview. Um, just before I uh, turn it over to Chris, um, we have the, uh, for those of you who are not MDIS uh, regulars, uh, if you'd like to be um, on the uh, MDIS uh, mailing list, uh, please put your uh, email there. And then also I have my uh, usual seating chart, which I use to exact retribution. Uh, for people whose questions or comments uh, annoy me suitably. So, I mean, you don't have a trap door with uh, alligators? <laughs> yeah, we have that too. But, uh, so I'd I like, like to document. I uh, used to live in Florida. I, I, I like having people devoured by alligators. Uh, yeah, okay. yeah. Well, uh, we'll have, I'm sorry you didn't bring some alligators uh, up from uh, the grasses. That they don't place. like this uh, weather. Yeah, exactly. It's, uh, it's warm out here today. But with that, uh, without... Uh, by your standards. <laughs> Without further ado, uh, please join me in giving a warm Notre Dame welcome to Professor Chris Lynch. And thank you, Mike, for such a nice introduction. You know, Mike and I, I will say this, we've been really good friends for over a quarter of a century now, except for one weekend every fall. That's yes, right. That's, that's right. right. Um, but it's really a pleasure to be here for a number of reasons, uh, not the least of which is seeing old friends, so Mike and Sebastian and Dan Lindley and my former student. Um, and uh, this is an elite university, and now that you guys have the International Security Center, um, you guys are really in a great position 
to make an even bigger mark on these debates about uh, American grand strategy and American foreign policy. All right, so let me tell you what I'm going to tell you. First, I'm going to tell you, just I'm just going to say it in so many words, American primacy is over, as we can all cheer. Um, secondly, I'm going to try and suggest to you why American primacy is over. I'm going to talk um, about the implications of the end of primacy for American grand strategy. I will briefly skate over Europe, North Korea, and the Middle East, um, but I will talk a lot about China. And then hopefully I will persuade you that uh, we really do need grand strategic adjustment. And I'm going to leave you probably wondering, well, why isn't it happening? There's such a good case for it. Why isn't it happening? What are the obstacles to prevent America from changing its grand strategy from primacy to something more sensible like offshore balancing or restraint um, along those lines. All right, so why is American primacy over? Um, that's another way of saying America's in decline. And boy, there's no word that is more neuralgic in these debates about American grand strategy than saying America is in decline. Um, but we are in decline, and the reasons are, I think, to be separated into both external and internal reasons. Externally, the primary cause of American decline in the end of primacy is the rise of China as a pure competitor, as a great power. I don't like the term superpower anymore, so I'm not going to use it. Um, but China is a great power and uh, in many ways has closed the gap with the United States much more rapidly than people, I think, would have ever thought. And then there are a lot of internal issues that are undermining American primacy. First, economic decline. We have, I, I know, I don't want to sound like uh, a Cassandra, because I do read Paul Krugman. Um, every now and then I agree with him. A lot of times I don't. I know if I said we have a looming fiscal crisis that Paul Krugman would jump down my throat if he were sitting in the audience. But sooner or later, and it's going to catch up with us, and we'll talk about that. And finally, I'm not going to really talk about this today, but we have a serious problem with political stasis in, in the United States. You know, our political system just doesn't seem to work anymore, and it doesn't seem to make any difference who's in charge. It just seems the system is broken, um, and that has uh, profound grand strategic implications. Now, <clears throat> I'm going to start by suggesting to you that the so-called declinists of the 1980s, so none of you, well, maybe a couple of you were born then, but most of you weren't. But you know who they are, the usual suspects, round up the usual suspects, Paul Kennedy, David Coyo, Bob Gilpin. Um, I'm going to suggest that the Aquinas were right. And as I suggest that to you, I also am very cognizant of a statement that the great John Huntsman made during his extremely successful campaign for the Republican presidential nomination in 2012, which lasted for what, about two months? Right. But he did say one thing, it's memorable, quote, you can't make this stuff up, quote, decline is un-American. But just because it's un-American doesn't mean it's not happening. Um, When, when you say America's in decline, you get this reaction, oh, you think the country's going down the toilet, we're experiencing this sudden collapse in our power. No, not at all. In fact, Paul Kennedy was clear. He didn't use the term, this is my term, but 
He said that America, in essence, was experiencing a termite-like decline. And, you know, for those of you who are homeowners or will be in the future, the last thing you want is termites eating away at the wooden structure of your house. And when termites get into your house, you don't see the damage immediately. You may not see it in five years or ten years, but sooner or later they're going to nibble away at that wood frame, and if you don't kill them, they're going to cause the house to collapse. So we are experiencing, as a nation, a termite-like decline. And uh, not a sudden collapse, nothing resembling a sudden collapse, but sort of this gradual erosion or ebbing away of American power. And you know what? This is an old story. It sort of makes you wonder, like, these things, I basically took all these things from Paul Kennedy and Bob Gilpin and David Coleo, who were writing back in the 80s. And you know what? They could have been writing today. What were they talking about? They were talking about persistent federal budget deficits, about an ever-mounting national debt, about our chronic trade and current account deficits, about the deindustrialization of American economy, about the fact that Americans consume too much and don't save enough. It's like, wow, does this have a familiar ring? It's like, so the question is, is when does it finally catch up with us? Um, now, when Paul Kennedy, um, actually we're celebrating an anniversary, aren't we? 1987 is when Kennedy's um, Rise and Fall of the Great Powers came out. My math isn't good. Is that 30 years ago, Mike? Or mm -hmm. 40, okay. Um, 30 years. And, no, 40 years. Uh, 40 years. Okay, that's right. I'm not, it's not base. It's not, it's not, if it's not on base percentages or fielding independent pitching average, I can't handle it. Um, but there was a, a debate that started in 1987, uh, largely because of Kennedy's book. And, and all of a sudden, that debate stopped. And why did it stop? Because, as I like to say, in one swell foop, the two primary um, culprits in the, the American decline story disappeared. The Soviet Union, our geopolitical rival, imploded. And Japan, our economic rival, had its bubble burst and suddenly declined. What declined? We're number one. Wasn't that when we had the so-called unipolar moment? And uh, it's only now, I think largely because of the effects of the Great Recession, that people are sort of going back and asking that question, you know, is America declining over the long term? And what does it mean for our role in the world? Now, when I have trouble falling asleep, here's how I go to sleep. I print off the latest Congressional Budget Office reports on uh, U.S. economic outlook, and I put them on my nightstand. And I know if, if I pick it up and start reading it, I'll be asleep in five minutes. Hopefully you won't be. But I think there are a couple of statistics that are really very telling, and they sort of raise red flags about America's ability over the long term to sustain um, a dominant role, not a, not a great power role, but a hegemonic role in the international system. First, uh, debt held by the public, um, according to the CBO, is likely to be 89% of GDP in 2027, rising 20 years later in 2047 to 145%.
Now, these are baseline assumptions. They assume that nothing has changed. There's no legislation. But if all the laws currently on the books stay in place by 2047, the U.S. Uh, debt uh, owned by the public will be 145% of GDP. And that's not sustainable, particularly since a lot of our debt is not domestic. It's owed to people overseas. Um, then we have this big gap between outlays um, or expenditures and revenue. Um, in 2017, the U.S. Uh, revenues will be 17.8% of GDP and expenditures 207 And then by 2027, uh, outlays increase to 23.4% of GDP and their revenues only go up to 18.4%. So you can see the gap between what we spend uh, and the money coming in from taxes is getting bigger. Then we have discretionary spending. And this is you know, what I call the Willie Sutton. Usually the CBO has this very nice chart. It shows mandatory spending. So what's the meaning of the word mandatory? It means you have to spend it. And that's not all the good stuff. Social Security. I like my Social Security check. It comes every month, a nice check. and uh, You're not taking that away from me. Okay, so mandatory. And then there's discretionary spending. And that's divided in two categories, defense and non-defense. Um, and right now, they're both about equal. In uh, 2017, defense is 3.1% of GDP. Um, non-defense is 3.2. And in 2027, they'll both be 2.6%. And if you look at the implications of the Trump budget, which we all know will not get passed, it shows that the Trump administration proposes squeezing non-defense discretionary spending even more to allow for this huge defense buildup that he's, President Trump is proposing. Now, what does that mean? I mean, what's in non-discretionary defense spending? It's a lot of the things that provide the seed corn for economic growth, post-education, scientific research, uh, infrastructure. All these things that you need to have a growing economy, and yet this keeps getting hacked away. You know, there was a time when non-discretionary, uh, discretionary non-defense spending was significantly greater in terms of percentage of GDP than discretionary spending on defense. That's changed. So what are we sacrificing by cutting back our discretionary non-defense spending in terms of laying foundations for long-term growth? Now, long-term growth, you know, President Trump came in and said, I'm going to get the economy to grow at 4%. Don't hold your breath. All the long-term forecasts um, by the CBO, uh, by the National Intelligence Council, by the Federal Reserve, said the United States will be very fortunate over the next 20 years to grow at 2% a year. Um, so why does it matter? Well, first it matters in terms of priorities. I mean... Arnold Wolfers wrote this classic article back in the 50s, uh, National Security is an Ambiguous Symbol. And he made a very you know, important point that I think we lose sight of. He said that in the modern era, great powers have to be both national security states and welfare states. I mean, the state, whether you're a Democrat or a Republican, at the end of the day, the state has a big role to play in promoting a nation's prosperity, promoting America's prosperity. So the more you shift into defense, 
and national security, what are the consequences for prosperity and economic growth? Um, you have Walter Lippmann, who talked about the grand strategy as a means of balancing resources and commitments. And that only not only means resources with external or strategic commitments, but also balancing the available resources against domestic needs. And that's going to become a much more acute problem as we go forward for the United States. Um, why does it matter? Well, it matters because the way we're headed, sooner or later, payments on the national debt are going to go up. Interest rates will go up. Um, you're going to have crowd out as capital is sucked into paying, paying buying debt. Um, Savings will go down, productivity and wages will go down, and there's a risk of a fiscal crisis um, because at some point, if the deficit continues to grow and the national debt continues to explode, uh, and overseas investors who basically bail us out from these problems will start to wonder, are we good for it? Now, okay, I don't want to overreact here. So I want to show you that I'm at least halfway sophisticated economically. Uncle Sam has one of these, except his is a little different. It's probably red, white, and blue. And it says the United States of American Express card. And Uncle Sam's card is a lot better than mine because every month I have a bill that I have to pay. Uncle Sam basically never has to pay. He never has to pay as long as the United States enjoys the exorbitant privilege of having the dollar as the primary reserve currency of the international financial system. As long as the United States has this exorbitant privilege, the IMF is never going to come to Washington and tell us we have to have an austerity budget and cut down expenditures and raise taxes. As long as other countries are willing to buy treasury bills, we'll be fine. But at some point, maybe they won't be so willing. Maybe they'll look at our debt situation, our economic situation, and say, you know what? Maybe America's not such a great place to invest our money anymore. Maybe the Americans aren't going to be good for it because their debts are getting to be too burdensome. We'll see. But this is really what, to me, the important thing is, are we going to be able to maintain the dollar's position as the reserve currency? Because honestly, as long as the dollar's reserve currency, we can buy an awful lot of guns and butter, as almost, I won't say as much as we want, but almost as much as we want, and not worry about the tab that we're running on. The question is, is how much can we get away, longer can we get away with that? All right, so let's talk about primacy. And what were the pillars of primacy? And primacy, actually, you know, America had its first unipolar moment in 1945, when the United States manufactured half of everything that was made in the world, controlled two-thirds of the world's gold and currency reserves, uh, possessed a monopoly on atomic weapons, and was the only nation that had overseas power projection capabilities. We were really big, strong, and powerful. And that is the era when what is still the international order, I should say, the Eikenberry-esque and refer to it as the liberal international, rules-based international order. Um, that's when that order was created. All the institutions that we think of, NATO, the World Bank, the International Monetary Fund, uh, GATT, the General Agreements of Tariffs and Trade, which is now uh, the World Trade Organization. Uh, all of these institutions were created in this 
unique period when America really enjoyed enormous superiority militarily, economically, financially over the rest of the world. We were a colossus. Um, and specifically, the Pax Americana, as it's come to be known, uh, American primacy is built on three pillars, military, economic, and institutional. Problem is, going forward, all three of these are eroding. Um, now, <clears throat> let's talk about the erosion of American economic power. In the last seven years, China has passed the United States as the world's leading exporter, the world's leading manufacturer, which was a title the United States had held for over a century, the world's largest trading nation, and finally, at least in terms of purchasing power parity, and for those of you who are economists, we can have a nice debate about whether market exchange rate or purchasing power parity is the best measure, but in terms of purchasing power parity, in October of 2014, China passed the United States in terms of GDP. Now, I may just be a strange person. I sort of think that was a significant event, but if you go back and you can do a Google search, there was not one op-ed article, op article written about that in any of the major newspapers. Not the New York Times, not the Washington Post, not the Los Angeles Times, not the Wall Street Journal, not the Financial Times. It's like it was a non-event. It's like if you read Paul Kennedy and Gilpin, and those guys like, this is a big event, but apparently not in the United States because we think we have a get-out-of-jail-free card, I guess. Um, and then when the Great Recession hit, one of the most extraordinary things, again, nothing written on the op-ed pages of any major newspaper, the ones that I mentioned. In uh, 2009, April 2009, at the G20 meeting in London, President Obama basically said, the United States isn't an economic hegemon. He said, the world's in a big recession. We're in a big recession. We're up to our eyeballs in debt. Don't look to us to kickstart global economic recovery because we can't afford it. And for those of you who haven't read Charles Kendallberger's uh, classic book, The World Depression, by the way, I'm really mad at Kendallberger because I wanted to use that title for my memoirs. Um, what is... What does Kendallberger say? He says, one of the primary functions of the world's economic leader is to be the market and lender of last resort. And when there's a downturn in the global economy, the hegemon's got to be the one to fix it. Not only were we not the ones to fix it, we were the ones who caused the problem in the first place. So I think that's rather extraordinary. It's also, again, extraordinary that nobody thought it was extraordinary, right? Nobody wrote about it. And then we have the decline of the institutional foundations. You know, they're, and, okay, you know, some of you are going to say, ah, oh, the BRICs, they're just a, a f function of that Goldman Sachs economist imagination. But you know, the BRICs have institutionalized themselves. They have summit meetings every year. Um, the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank, another Chinese-led initiative, which hasn't gotten nearly the attention for its impact on grand strategy and the competition between the United States and China for dominance in East Asia. It's a fundamentally important event. You have institutions like the Shanghai Cooperation Organization and even Russia's Collective Security Treaty Organization. What's the common denominator here? All of these are institutions 
that are being created that are outside the structure of the Pax Americana. And uh, you know, some of them may not amount to anything. Asia Infrastructure Investment Bank may very well amount to something. But it's clear that not everybody in the world, not every nation, not every major nation, accepts that the structure created in the late 1940s by the United States is still should be the primary basis of the international order. Now, the U.S. has some big problems with military power, too, uh, not just the ones I refer to. Um, in 1980, uh, at the end of the Carter administration, the United States accounted for 25% of the world's output, according to market exchange rate. Um, and it spent 25% of its GDP on defense. Today, the United States spends over just 40% of its GDP on defense, but the U.S. share of the global economy has shrunk from 25% to under 18%. So we're spending an awful lot on defense, even as our economic weight in the world is shrinking. You have to wonder how long is that sustainable? Um, so I'm going to say all of these factors, fiscal constraints uh, particularly, suggest that the United States needs to retrench. We need to do less, I would say a lot less abroad, uh, and focus more on uh, what we're doing at home. I guess the catchphrase has become nation building at home. Yeah, you know, just I don't know if you noticed it the other day, I think it was in the Wall Street Journal, the American Society of Civil Engineers gave the U.S. infrastructure um, a C, a, pardon me, a D-plus rating and projected it would take almost $5 trillion to rebuild our infrastructure, dams, bridges. You know, out in California, my native state, you may have noticed the problem with the Oroville Dam last month. Um, yeah, um, infrastructure is a big problem in the United States. Our go-to-most airports in the United States. Like the only airport that I would want a good friend of mine to come into the United States as his first experience, and I'm not saying this because I'm a big fan of Texas, because I'm not, but it's the Dallas-Fort Worth Airport. Heaven forbid they should come into LAX, or O'Hare's not too bad, but it's not great, or, or LaGuardia, or Newark. I mean, these airports, disastrous. So any of you been to Shanghai, or the new Beijing Capital Airport? It's like, our airports are so second rate. So there are a lot of things that need to uh, be done at home, and actually, I'm going to be controversial here and say, you know, all this stuff about pivoting to Asia is wrong. What we should really be doing is pivoting to North America and taking care of ourselves. Um, now, geopolitical trends um, point in the same direction, that uh, we are overstretched, we have lots of commitments, and some of them are pretty dangerous. And I'm just going to touch on this very briefly, but uh, believe it or not, in my opinion, Donald Trump actually said one intelligent thing. He said that South Korea and Japan should have their own nuclear weapons. And for those of you who read Kenneth Waltz's famous article, Nuclear Weapons, More Be Better. The problem, you know, when Trump goes on and on, with, whether it's respect to Europe or the Japanese or so forth, the problem isn't burden sharing. It's a nice issue. It's been around for a long time. When I wrote Peace of Illusions, the first document that I could find generated by the State Department 
where American policymakers were complaining that the Europeans weren't doing enough, they weren't doing their fair share, was in 1951. It's like two years after the North Atlantic Treaty. But, but burden sharing isn't the problem. The problem is we live in a nuclear world, and the United States has this strategy of extended deterrence where we say we will be willing to risk nuclear war to defend our allies, even if they are only subject to a conventional attack. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't think the uh, Senkaku or Diao Islands are really worth fighting a war with China, particularly one that could escalate nuclear war. I'm going to go even further. I don't think Estonia or Latvia or Lithuania are worth risking a nuclear war with Russia. So extended deterrence is a bad strategy. It basically says that we will commit suicide for our allies. No ally, no ally is important enough for which to risk suicide. Now, you know, we keep telling, or our, our strategic effort experts keep saying, oh, we need to reassure our allies. We need to make them feel that they're safe and secure under the American nuclear bill. Absolutely wrong. What we need to do is de-assure our allies and basically tell them, don't you ever think we're going to risk nuclear war for you? You're on your own. And you know what? Even though Trump didn't quite say anything, the mere fact that he suggested that the United States might reduce its commitment to Europe. If you've been reading the papers for the last month and a half, Germany is talking about having a debate, and they're actually having a debate now about whether they should get nuclear weapons. Europe is having a debate about, well, back to the multilateral force days of the 1960s and early 70s, um, about whether they should have a European nuclear deterrent. Somebody was actually quoted in the Financial Times, of course, their good quotes are always attributed to an anonymous person. A senior EU diplomat said, well, gosh, if the Americans aren't going to defend us, we'll have to defend ourselves. What a great idea. Okay, so do you assure them? Don't assure them. Um, now, I'm not really that concerned about the Senkaku Islands or the Ao Islands. I'm not concerned about the RPOT. By the way, in my class, we don't bend those. We don't ever talk about Taiwan. We talk about the RPOT, RPOT, the renegade province of Taiwan. And we don't ever talk about allies. And I want to make sure that this was on the record. This was well before Donald Trump was ever on anybody's radar screen as a presidential candidate. And Ben knows this. We don't ever use the word allies in my class. We call them what they are, free-riding security dependents. Okay? Um, now. China is not Estonia, it's not Lithuania, it's not, it's a big country. So I always like to tell my students, I think you've heard me say this, I know everything there is to know about China. And people look at me, you know, <laughs> and think, wow, Professor Lang, what is that? And I'll say, well, it's a big country with a lot of people. And then I'll stop for a moment and say, oh, and an economy that is already the world's largest economy, a rapidly improving military capability. Um, it's a country that's on the move, it's on the rise. Um, now, I have my theory, it was in one of my chapters about what, what I call the gravitational theory of great power politics. You know, whatever goes up, comes down. The United States was up, it's coming down. China was down, it's coming up. Um, that's sort of oversimplifying things, but that's basically, I mean, this is the 
historical pattern and great power relationships. That as uh, Gilpin, I think, was the first one to point out, you know, growth rates are different. They're not parallel. Somebody's always gaining relative power while somebody else is losing it. This is exactly what's happening today. Um, and contrary to John Huntsman and most of the people in the foreign policy establishment in Washington, the United States does not have a get-out-of-jail-free card that exempts it from these macro-historical trends. And so we are actually seeing what is very normal when you see a great power, formerly dominant great power, beginning to decline, and a rising challenger. We have power transition dynamics in East Asia. I'm going to come back to that. And it's not just military. Um, you know, we, we get so fixated on military power and, and, quote, our soft power, which is really soft. So soft that I'm not sure it really counts for anything. But economic power counts for a lot. And um, if you look at uh, China, its power, economic power, magnetic power of the Chinese economy, just a couple of quick statistics. Um, going back to um, 2003, the United States counted for 14.3% of ASEAN's trade in goods, and China accounted for 7.2. Today, the US share is down to 9.8%, and China's is at 10.4%. And if I give you other ASEAN statistics, which I will not do, because they all say the same thing. And if you go back to the early 1990s, China was hardly a blip on the trading patterns of the ASEAN countries. The United States was very prominent. So now you see this trend, and these countries are being drawn inexorably into China's orbit. Now, this is great for you guys who are still thinking about, what should I do my doctoral thesis on? Well, you know, balancing versus bandwagoning. Which, which wins here? Does the rise of China's military power mean that all these states are going to gravitate to the United States to protect them? Or does the fact that they're getting drawn into China's economic orbit, inexorably drawn in, mean that they're going to end up aligning with China? I think that's a great question. I'm not going to answer it, but I think it's a great question. Now, I don't know how many of you know all the ins and outs of our tribal relations in uh, security studies. Um, but Bill Woolforth and then Bill with Stephen Brooks and I have been conducting this ongoing, never-ending debate about is the world still unipolar or is it not unipolar? And of course, they just came out with a new book. And uh, I think one of the things that they say that's very true, oh, well, China is still a unipolar world. The U.S. is still dominant. China doesn't have any military power. It's like, the, huh, excuse me, what have they been reading? Um, Rand just recently put out a, a book, it's a, a study, it's very thick paperback, called the uh, U.S.-China Military Scorecard. And uh, they conclude, they, they're, actually their concluding chapter is entitled The Receding Frontier of U.S. Dominance. Well, that's not so encouraging for a unipolar power, is it? Um, and uh, other analysts say that uh, by 2020, China will be approaching the, uh, equality or parity with the U.S. 
in terms of military doctrine, equipment, personnel, and training. That's Roger Cliff's book, China's Military Power. Um, Cliff also says that unquestioned military dominance in East Asia will be over by 2020. Mike, do you have a calendar? What year are we in? What year are we in? 2017. 2017. It's 18, 19, 20. 2020 isn't that far down the road, is it? Um, and he says that by the late 2020s, China will be capable of directly challenging the geopolitical status quo in East Asia. And the trend lines are bad for the United States. And this point is made by the RAND study. Uh, and I'll just quote them quickly. Although China has not closed the gap with the United States, it has narrowed it, and quite rapidly, even for many of the contributors to this report who track developments in Asian military situation on an ongoing basis, the speed of change is striking. China is actually rapidly closing the military gap with the United States. So I think Stephen and Bill better take another look at their assumptions. Now, the other thing that, well, this is, we're Americans, right? China can't be economically powerful because we're supposed to be the economic powerhouse. So we hear, well, Mike, you might remember this, Sebastian might remember this, Dan might remember this. A couple of years ago, three years ago, I think, during the summer, something happened. I don't even remember what it was. But suddenly everybody on Bob Arch's listserv is writing posts like, ah, this crisis in China proves that they're finished. Their economic dominance, you know, the rise to economic credit, all over. No more. China's history. Americans are always finding reasons to say China will never make it to the top. But you know what? They're getting awfully close. Just, uh, you know, Morgan Stanley, um, just issued, and, and Citigroup, both just in the last month. Um, issued reports that were uh, reported in the Financial Times uh, that are very bullish on China's long-term growth prospects. And McKinsey says, the report that was uh, published last year, last June, says that China still has a great deal of room for catch-up growth. All right, then the, what's the other thing? So China's economy can't last forever. Not for real, it's a big facade. Well, all right, let's get past that because that's just not true. Oh, but they, they can't innovate. How many times have you read, China can't innovate? And I think, well, every time I see that, I say, well, this is really strange. It's like, where did gunpowder come from? Where did the compass come from? Where did the printing press, printing press come from? And most of all, where did pasta come from? I mean, has there ever been a more important innovation in human history than pasta? It came from China. Now let's look at some you know, current Things. 2007, China used a ground-based missile to intercept a orbiting satellite. Um, last summer, it was announced that China has now possesses the world's fastest supercomputer, and it's been built entirely with Chinese microprocessors. The United States, according to Financial Times, is surpassing the U.S. in uh, digital technology. The technology editor of the Financial Times says, quote, Anyone who reckons China is only ever going to play technology catch-up with the West should look around the Shanghai metro carriage and think again. He's referring to how people are so connected in China with their cell phones and other devices. Um, China, according to the Financial Times and the Wall Street Journal, 
is at the cutting edge in artificial intelligence, quantum computers, biopharmacy, electric cars, semiconductors. Um, so where is this myth that China can't innovate? Um, China, last summer, launched the world's first quantum communication satellite, which makes it almost impossible to uh, eavesdrop on the communications. Um, that's a big technological leap forward. Um, China's now operating, again, last, starting last fall, the world's largest single-dish radio telescope. And uh, as The Economist reported in uh, fall of 2015, China is private Chinese firms, not the state-owned enterprise, are making huge strides in, um, in innovation. So don't write them off. Don't be John Huntsman. Don't be one of these Washington bureaucrats who just, you know, believes in the ostrich theory of foreign policy, of grand strategic analysis. Bury your head in the sand if you don't like what you see. But you better see it because it's important. It's changing the global distribution of power. Now, okay, so now you're going to come back and tell me, what, what difference does it really make? I mean, come on. China's going to rise peacefully. Right? What's that, uh, Alfred E. Newman? Are any of you old enough to remember, besides Mike and, uh, and uh, maybe Dan, are any of you old enough to remember Mad Magazine? And you should look, look Mad Magazine up on your laptop when you can Google it. Their cover boy was Alfred E. Newman. And his motto was, what? Me worry? And uh, why should we worry? China's rise is going to be peaceful. Well, I don't think so, because there is a real pattern to the rise of great powers. First of all, they get wealthy. Their economies start to produce and generate wealth. Then, as they have more wealth, they become more ambitious. Um, they want more status. Their interests, the scope of their interest, expands geographically. Uh, and as that happens, they decide they need a lot of military power, uh, especially power projection capabilities. And as they get to a certain point as rising great powers, they want to dominate their own backyards. They want to become regional hegemons. Simple bottom line, the rise of great powers, new great powers, means geopolitical instability. And more to the point, the rise of certain great powers when they get to a point like Germany and Japan and the United States in the late 19th and early 20th century are China today you get these power transition dynamics and uh, the shift in the distribution of power, declining dominant power versus rising challenges, um, status quo versus revisionism. All this means power transitions end up in war. And this has profound implications for the U.S.-China relationship. Now, Mike is going to, he wants to pull the, the trap door on me and, uh, and send me to the alligators. Um, Nobody wants to get champed by an alligator. But um, let me just try to wrap this up in five minutes. So uh, there's, there's a lot that I wanted to talk about, about the Anglo-German relationship before 1914. And we could talk about this during the Q&A as a model for the Sino-American relationship today. But you see the role of ideology playing a very important role in negative British perceptions of a rise in Germany. You see British shock at 
the way Germany passed them economically, all this dominating their hostility towards Germany. But you also see this big phenomenon. It's like, I love, I love our, some of our colleagues, um, Steve Brooks and Bill Woolforth, in their 2008 book. They say, well, yeah, the U.S. is still number one. It'll be number one for a long time. They define number long time as 20 years because they said that the U.S. had a 20-year window to lock in the uh, liberal rules-based international order. And then in their new book, um, they basically said, oh, yeah, China's catching up, but they still have a long way to go. They have a long way to go. But how long a way do they go? And what happens to the rules-based liberal international order when they do catch up? John Eikenberry says, yeah, 20 years from now, it won't be a unipolar world. U.S. won't be dominant. But the liberal rules-based international order, the Pax Americana, won't disappear. I don't understand where they find logic or reasoning or evidence to support this argument. International orders are created by dominant powers. They are maintained as long as those dominant powers have the material capabilities to dominate the international system. Now, Eikenberry says, oh, even when China becomes more powerful than the United States, they won't change the Pax Americana. Or they might rename it, but they won't, they won't change anything. They'll, they'll accept it because they, quote, rose within the system. Well, yeah, they rose within the system. But something tells me if you were to drop in on the Zhangman High one night when they're all sitting around um, drinking Qingdao beer and laughing at the United States for being so hopelessly bogged down in places like Iran, Afghanistan, and Syria, that they're saying, these Americans, what, what's wrong with them? When are they going to wake up and smell the coffee? Well, we may have risen within the system, but we sure as heck didn't rise to preserve an American-dominated system. And so, in fact, what people like Brooks and Woolforth and, uh, and Eikenberry are telling us is that the United States can enjoy what I can best describe as a zombie form of hegemony, right? You won't be the economic leader. You won't be the dominant military power. But somehow, the rules and the norms and the institutions will all be just the way you made them and they won't be changed. Zombie hegemon. So, look, the bottom line about this rules-based international order is who rules makes the rules. And when distribution of power changes in the international system, those who make the international system and the rules change too. And the best, in conclusion, recommendation I can give to you is you all should go back and read E.H. Carr's 20 Years Crisis if you haven't already done so. Because Carr was writing exactly about this kind of a problem. So where status quo and revisionism is that, sure, the status quo power likes things the way they are. And the British and French loved the Versailles system. Maybe the British didn't like it quite as much as the French, but the French loved the Versailles system. And it worked. Actually, you can read... Um, Zero Steiner's great book, The, the Light That Failed. It, for, for much of the 1920s, it looked like the Versailles system was going to endure. 
But when the balance of power changed, the Versailles system collapsed. And so this is the great challenge. It was a challenge for the British and French versus Germany in the 1930s. If you're a declining power that likes the status quo, and there's a rising challenger that wants revision, what do you do? And this is the problem that the United States is going to face with China as we go forward to the 21st century. And that is a very dangerous situation, in my opinion, because I don't see any sign at all that the United States is willing to accommodate the rise of China. Great. Uh, on that happy note, uh, why don't we... Uh, I could throw in a little more you know, negativity yeah. if there wasn't enough. No, I think that's, uh, that's pretty good. The, uh, uh, the Notre Dame Wellness Center is going to have a long <laughs> so uh, I think we're, we're set. Can I get uh, a temporary membership? Yeah, exactly. The, uh, the floor is open. Do we have an uh, undergraduate to uh, kick us off? Uh, can I ask a favor? Um, if you could move a little bit closer to me when you have a question. I have a little trouble hearing. Or I can come to you, whatever. We can meet halfway. OK. <laughs> we, we normally like to avoid uh, physical contact I love, <laughs> I, I, love, I love physical contact. That's why I like the National Hockey League. Yeah. But I left my stick at home, so, okay. Okay. so there won't be any high-sticking penalties. Okay. Uh, no. Uh, oh, please. Come on right up here. He won't fight. <laughs> and if he does fight, uh, we'll get you some rabies shots. And a waiver. And a waiver. <laughs> so I was just wondering, you were talking about... Uh, yeah, I, I can't, I, I'm oh, having trouble hearing. Right, right up. He can't get around the... Uh, this is actually the uh, questioner's... Uh, yeah. Oh, yes. Okay. Well, I was just wondering, you were talking about um, allowing South Korea and Japan to gain nuclear weapons, other countries doing that, and also other nations looking after their own security. In a country, in a world, rather, where you see other powers rising to um, law-based international systems evolving, does that worry you that you have more actors, more actors armed with nuclear weapons and suddenly a much more mobile international system where force has um, potentially a lot more relevancy than it has in the past? Well, I, have, I worry selectively. Okay, seriously, I worry selectively. Um, there are some states that I probably would not want to see possessing nuclear weapons, either because their political systems are not stable or because they don't have the capability, either economically or geographically, to build such secure second strike retaliatory forces. But, you know, South Korea, Japan, Germany, they're all stable countries. They all have the resources to build secure second strike retaliatory forces. I'll worry about, I'm sorry, I grew up during the Cold War, and uh, I know this was a minority position during the Cold War. I worry about the nature of the American commitments that were made to our allies. And you know, nobody in Washington, an official Washington, ever wants to talk about this. Um, there was a poll during, I think, 1982 or 83, during the inter intermediate range nuclear forces uh, crisis um, in NATO, um, asking, the Washington Post took the poll, it was published in the Washington Post. 82% of the respondents, supposedly a representative example of the American public, had no idea that it was American policy to make the first use of nuclear weapons, if necessary, in response to a conventional attack 
on our European allies and NATO. So not, and basically, people don't realize the consequences. Now, every now and then, something kind of escapes. And Henry Kissinger um, made a statement at the International Strategic Studies meeting, um, International Institute for Strategic, Strategic Studies meeting in Brussels in 1979, which is supposed to be Chatham House rules, right? You can't quote anybody. But somehow, he was quoted the next day in the New York Times. And I think I remember that quote verbatim because it's so telling. Former Secretary of State, leading academic theorist on nuclear studies says, quote, don't you Europeans keep asking us to make assurances that we should not want to give and that if we did give, we should never want to execute. So, you know, Kissinger understood. You know, extended deterrence means you're willing to risk suicide via nuclear war to defend your allies. So I worry about that too. I mean, as an American, uh, during the Cold War um, at a conference, somebody asked me, well, what, are, what happens if the Soviets overrun Western Europe? And I just said, well, you know, if I'm given two choices, one is the Soviets overrunning Western Europe, or the other is American cities as smoking heaps of radioactive rubble, which would I choose? I think I'd rather have the Soviets overrunning Western Europe. So, you know, you have to balance the risk of extended deterrence. And I think the public is generally not aware of what those risks are. And so, you know, Obama, when his... Uh, policy on reducing you know, the role of nuclear weapons. He wasn't willing to make a no first use pledge. Trump won't be, no American president will be willing to make a no first use pledge. But it's that first pledge to use nuclear weapons first to defend your allies that's a very dangerous commitment. Great, well, uh, thank you very much, Kate. So my question is about the, uh, the way that the Chinese have tied their currency to the dollar. Uh, and I want to know, given the fact that they are they're pegging their currency to the dollar, do you think that's going to impede China's ability to become uh, as economically powerful as they could be? So do you think that that's going to, obviously China will be able to gain parity with the U.S., but will they be able to go beyond that because of the fact that their economy is dependent on our economy? Well, first, uh, you know, let's, let's go back and talk about this debate in the United States. Listen to people like Senator Schumer or President Trump. China artificially depresses the value of its currency to gain an unfair advantage with cheap exports, right? By the way, that's not true anymore. Uh, China is very concerned about maintaining the value of the uh, renminbi. And by the way, so am I, because I I'm going to just tell the story, just deviate for a moment and go off the tangent. When, when I went to a conference in China a couple of years ago, at the airport, my minder turns me over to go through the security gate. But first, he hands me this big, fat envelope. It was my honorarium. It was stuffed with an awful lot of renminbi notes, which I have safely stored in my desk. So I am hoping for renminbi appreciation, because I'm going to take my more valuable renminbis and go back to Shanghai and have a lot of good dinners. OK, but um, people like, like uh, Senator Schumer and President Trump and others China depresses the value. They need to appreciate their currency. Because for those of you who are market exchange rate people, it's the first purchasing power parity. So let's say China appreciates its value of the renminbi by 
well, what does that do to their GDP in versus the United States in purchasing power parity terms? You know, I think China is not really so closely tied to the dollar at this point. They sort of broke that uh, peg, but they are very concerned for domestic economic reasons. They don't want people taking a lot of money out of the country. So you notice that recently they've imposed capital control to try and limit. Um, but over the long term, um, and I guess the best recent book about this actually reviewed, I think, in the current issue or the immediately past issue of foreign affairs is uh, Eswar Prasad's book on, on the renminbi. So, you know, don't, don't sell the renminbi short. Don't dismiss it as a candidate over the next, you know, multiple decades to become a real challenger to the dollar's reserve currency. Because there is a historical pattern, right? The reserve currency has always been owned, quote unquote, by the state with the largest economy and the most powerful military. And right now, if you look at the trend lines, they're not in our favor. Okay, uh, Sebastian? Chris, oh, oh. can you hear me if I shout? Yeah. Pardon? Can you hear me if I shout? Uh, well, sort of. Come over there. I'll come over. He, he wants you in the dock. I'm going to decide. Oh, okay. Well, see, I want to have the, the uh, option of either hearing or not hearing. <laughs> kind of like Lord Nelson at the Battle of Copenhagen. So I want to ask turning you, a blind eye to... <laughs> uh, I want to ask you if you're schizophrenic as well as depressed. Um, <laughs> you said you were depressed. I mean, that's, I'm not putting words in that. You have yeah, this, the world of depression. This, that should be my memoir. You have this argument um, that is straight-up structural realism which is basically the argument you made in your unipolar illusion piece, which I love. And you say, look, states rise and fall, it's inevitable, and when they rise and fall, at some point, they're going to come into conflict. And the beauty of that argument is that there's nothing you can do about it, right? We're headed for bad times. We don't know when that's going to happen, but it's always going to end up like that. That's great power politics. And then on the other it's hand... Baseball. On the other hand, you're railing against the United States, and you say, you know, they're carrying out these terrible policies, um, but there's no policy they could adopt that could possibly solve the problem, right? So at worst, what the United States has done is it's accelerated the problem. And I, I don't have a good sense of how much it's accelerated the problem, like all this stupid behavior. Has that brought, I mean, you tell me now that China might be there in 2020. So have we brought it forward to 2020 when it could have been 2025 or 2030? So is it just a timing issue? And then right at the end, you said something about accommodate. You said we're not going to accommodate China. Um, do you think we should? Yes. So, I mean, In a word, yes. But so you're not a structuralist. There is something you can No, do I'm mixed. Tell me, come on. You know, you can't be mixed. The, the, uh, very easily, because I recognize that... Uh, we don't have a chalkboard. Was that a chalkboard? No. no there's a whiteboard. A whiteboard. All right. It doesn't sweep. But you don't have all the good colors that we have. <laughs> Check the other one. All right. So here's the structure. We have every color in the rainbow. You have right. else besides black. Here's the structure of the international system. Here's domestic politics. And the grand strategy is right here. Structure, structural constraints press down, and domestic politics bubble up. So that, in fact, if you're talking about strategy, grand strategy, it's not 
purely structural. And you know, a thing that always surprises me about the piece of illusions is that nobody realized, apparently, except for um, this guy who reviewed it for, I'm embarrassed to say, well, there are all the colors over there, Mike. You didn't tell me. The, <laughs> the, new, the, the new left review of all places. It's really a very subversive book in a lot of ways. I mean, it's not purely structural realist. It uh, focuses a lot on the in and politique aspects of grand strategy. And I also want to say that, you know, I would make the argument that the United States is kind of sui generis from other great powers. It's like we don't live in a big dangerous neighborhood. We live in our own little self-contained neighborhood, except we're not smart enough to realize how, how safe we are. Um, one book that really influenced me a lot is Robert W. Tucker's book called The New Isolationism. I think he wrote it in 1975. And what he basically points out is like, why is it nobody who makes grand strategy for the United States understands the real meaning of the nuclear revolution? Is that we don't have to worry about the balance of power in Eurasia anymore. We're safe. Nobody's coming over here. So, you know, these, so basically all our wars are wars of choice. And, you know, so I think the United States, because of the uniqueness of its geographic setting, the international system, domestic factors make a lot more difference in our grand strategy. Um, but I do agree with you, you know, at the end of the day, we're not going to be number one unless China collapses, which is what all American policymakers hope for, and some of them work for, and people like Aaron Friedberg write about, right? So China must collapse. Well, the only thing I'm going to say is if your only strategy is to hope that your opponent collapses, you don't have a very good strategy. I mean, maybe they will, but I wouldn't bet on it. Did you have a tooth? I do, yeah. Oh. So my question is also on uh, this point of accommodation um, that Sebastian brought up. And in your first chapter right at the end, you signal, I think, what might be coming later in the book that we didn't get here. But, but you said that the United States should accommodate China, um, or, or you said that as an, offshore as an offshore balancer, it would accommodate China. And I wanted to ask about that, because my understanding of offshore balancing is not that it's a strategy of accommodation, but it's, it's a limited strategy in terms of your, your interest right, out there in the world. Um, but specifically where you are going to get involved is to stop the rising regional hegemons, right, that might come and get you down the road. And so you've written, obviously, a lot about offshore balancing before. And I'm, so I'm curious, is this a, a different direction? Or what am I not understanding here about offshore balance, the connection between offshore balancing and accommodating? Well, okay, so should I unmask myself here? Because will, will this boost sales of my book when it's ready to be published by Yale? Um, uh -huh. I don't know. I don't, I'm not sure I want to completely unmask myself, but let me say a couple of things. And if I'm equivocating, you come back at me and say, I want you to unmask yourself. <laughs> um, first of all, if you look at the writings of people who are described as offshore balancers, there's actually a pretty broad spectrum. Um, some of them are more, I won't say interventionists, but see a more active role in the United States than others. And so now I'm going to tell another personal story. Uh, one of our best friends in the profession is Bob Bart, you know, who uh, is really one of, one of the. I mean, he's been an incredible leader for security studies. But when I when I was at the Kennedy School, you know, Bob Bob decided. He said, "Quote: I'm going to make I'm going to make myself your career rabbi." And great, 
Bob Hart, I love him, and he's smart and influential. So, well, who could have a better career rabbi? And then we'd always be sitting around and talking, and he would say, what's this offshore balancing nonsense? You're just an isolationist. And then um, my current colleague, Andrew Ross, and my uh, friend and graduate school colleague, Barry Posen, wrote that piece in uh, International Security in 96, I believe it was, on uh, typologies of US grand strategy. And they actually had a long footnote. And they exculpated me from being an isolationist. And I, I, I actually went to Bob and I you know, jokingly said, see, I'm not, a nice, not an isolationist because Barry and Andy Ross say I'm not an isolationist. But I'll tell you what, on the spectrum, I'm a lot closer to that than I am to people who want to take a more accurate. Like, you know, your antenna should perk up when I said what I said a moment ago about Robert W. Tucker's book. I mean, his argument is that in terms of the global balance of power in a nuclear world, the United States doesn't have to worry a fig about what happens in Eurasia because it can't really affect our security. And actually, Bob, you know, Bob wrote this piece. What year was it that he wrote the piece on Spiekman? On what? On Nicholas Spiekman. Spiekman. You mean his grand strategy? Yeah, he did this in yeah, security studies. Oh, uh, yeah, he wrote that, you know, Spiekman was this, uh, one of the great early American thinkers or, um, about grand strategy and geography. And he wrote this book that was actually written before Pearl Harbor, but published just after Pearl Harbor, called America's Strategy and World Politics. And Spiekman asked the question, can the United States just withdraw into the Western Hemisphere and be safe? And I don't know, maybe 10 years ago, Bob Art wrote this piece for security studies where he analyzed the argument, could the U.S. do it? And he concluded that economically, the U.S. could be self-sufficient. But then he says at the end, but of course we can't retreat. You know, we have to, be, have to defend our ideas, we have to defend our values, we have to defend our norms and promote democracy. So it's not a security argument anymore. You know, it's an argument that we have to do other things. I'm saying in terms of security, what we need to do is basically sit here in North America and we can be happy. Okay, uh, I'm next. So, um, I, I buy your assessment of you know, the uh, end of the unipolar mo moment, right? I think that's a, uh, a very compelling argument. But I don't buy your, your bullishness on China. Or, or rather, I think you're a bit of a China threat and uh, I don't, first of all, I don't, I don't, uh, I don't think you're right. Uh, I think uh, China, you know, has had some very remarkable growth. And uh, in certain areas, uh, they have done uh, very well. But in, in, you know, some of the main areas of military power, uh, there's still a generation behind us. And I don't see much evidence of them uh, catching up, and I guess you know, for me, the uh, fact that they're uh, you know buying second-hand Ukrainian casinos, they're they're, they're building in. their own aircraft carriers now. Yeah, uh, we'll you know we'll see, but um, and, and I will look at the uh, at the Rand assessment, uh, and maybe you know I've been asleep for ten years, and they're actually on the the cutting edge of the RMA, but. Um, 
what I find more persuasive are arguments along the lines uh, of the sort that you know people like Gene Golds make, which is that you know they're very smart about uh, designing uh, asymmetric strategy and using you know uh, not to advance technology uh, against us if we do something dumb. So there's that. I also think that domestically. Uh, I, I don't think they're going to fall apart tomorrow, but that all the signs are that this is a, a brittle regime. It's a regime whose main claim to fame, uh, Marxism-Leninism, uh, is in name only. Um, and, you know, its real sort of legitimacy uh, hangs on continuing uh, high levels of economic growth that I, I don't think anybody thinks is really sustainable. So. I'm not even sure you need to make the China's 10-foot-tall argument uh, to make your what I think is your more compelling argument, which is that uh, the United States uh, is overstretched um, and, by the way, doesn't need to uh, uh, you know, have as active a, a grand strategy as we've had, certainly, since the end of the Cold War. Uh, so why do you, why do you got to puff the Chinese up in order to make that other argument? Are you like Harry Truman? Are you scaring the hell out of us? Because that's the only way that we're going to be restrained. Well, you know that's an interesting point. I mean, uh, that's basically what Ken Waltz said in the last chapter of Theory of International Politics. He said that, that the United States needed the Soviet Union to keep us from going off the rails, right? That. Uh, very, you know, by the way, I, I do commend, for those of you who haven't read Theory of International Politics lately, go back and read the last chapter. Because we, we, we read it every month. You know, it's sort just of, every you month? Know, like Scientology. No, I expect you to be like the no, cadres of the Communist Party and to be chanting <laughs> <laughs> every day quotations from Chairman Walt. Um, but you know, one of the things, as you know, neorealists are always, the structural realists are taken over the coals or over the rack because, oh, we don't have any normative uh, input. We don't have values. We don't. Well, you know, Ken Waltz had some values, and they come through very clearly in that last chapter. And one of his values, I guess, if, if, he, if he'd been alive when President Obama gave his interview um, to the Atlantic, he would have said his foreign policy for America is like what Obama said, don't do stupid stuff, right? Um, and of course, he also was in the forefront of arguing against the Vietnam War, which was one of the quintessential examples of America doing stupid stuff. Look, Mike, I don't know. You know, China, China provokes these wide reactions. They're, you've got your China bears, you've got your China bulls. Um, but as long, I think. I think we are seeing a resurgence of great power politics. I'm not saying China is 10 feet tall, but I'm saying that however tall we are, they're getting to the point where they're that tall too. And they're, you know, they're, you know, maybe not, oh, I know, they're, they're not a superpower, they're not, uh, not another pole of power, according to uh, some of our friends, because they're not a global power. So that's how the, the metrics for being a great power keep changing. But you know what? In East Asia, which is, probably the most important region of the world. Please don't tell Gabriella that I said that. Um, my wife is European. Um, 
China is emerging as a very formidable competitor. In the United States, our foreign policy establishment still thinks that we need to preserve our dominant role in East Asia that we've enjoyed since the end of World War II. And I think that's dangerous for us. So that's my answer. Okay. Um, may not be a good answer, but it's an answer. Thank you for presenting your book chapters. I really enjoyed it. I'm going to come towards you a little bit so I can hear you. You sit. My question is more theoretical rather than practical. Um, in page nine from your last chapter draft, um, your paper says what often tips the outcome to war is not the competition for power and security, but rather the contest for status and prestige. Um, despite this emphasis on status and prestige, there seems to there seems not a lot of explanation about how seeking for status and prestige drives competition between the United States and China. Um, can you explain how seeking for status and prestige is different from um, seeking for hegemonic status? I mean, seeking for hegemon and how the non-material variables explain and predict the future China-U.S. relations. Okay, well, this is the part of uh, the talk that I really didn't give. Um, you know, uh, as another aside, I, I don't think I announced this to you. I, I am no longer a political scientist. Okay, I've socially reconstructed my identity. Uh, I have a degree in diplomatic history from Cambridge University, the real Cambridge, not the one in Massachusetts. Um, and so I now tell people, um, I am a diplomatic historian who knows something about IR theory, because I'm sort of like you, unhappy with where our political science discipline is going. So I would say, to me, one of the classic examples um, that we can use to see where the US and China are going is to look at Great Britain and Germany before 1914. And there's uh, Michelle Murray um, wrote a great article about this. And I think she has a book, right? Did she finish her book on this? You should ask Sebastian, who was classmates. It's done and reviewed. Yeah, okay, so she had this, but the article is really a terrific article. I said, why did Germany build battleships? They had no chance of taking control of the seas away from Great Britain before World War I. And in fact, by building this large fleet of battleships, because all they did was alienate Great Britain and push it into the arms of France and Russia. So it was not a good strategic decision. But battleships were considered to be the sine qua non of being not just a great power, but being a, quote, world power, which is what the Germans wanted. They wanted to be recognized as having equal status in the international system to the British. And of course, they were at a disadvantage because they were latecomers, right? So by the time Germany became a great power, most of the goodies in an international system, particularly things like colonies and uh, having an influence on the rules and norms, had already been allocated and cited by others. And the Germans were the slight comer. Yeah, but they wanted to be acknowledged as being on an equal plane. Look, you know, I'm not going to, you, you know more about China's politics than I do, for sure. But it seems to me, when I read what Chinese policymakers are basically saying, you know, century of humiliation, right? So well, any country, like the baseball team, like the Cubs, any team can have a bad century or 150 years, right? Um, but you know what? That, that is a great sensitivity. 
Um, China wants to be acknowledged as being not just a, a rising power, but actually a restored power. Because you know, you go to China, they're not their ex scholars aren't talking about China as a rising power. They're talking about the restoration of Chinese power. For those of you who don't know anything about 17th, 18th, and early 19th century, China had the largest GDP in the world. Now, obviously, they had some internal problems. They weren't able to convert that economic might into the kind of power that they needed to succeed you know, in great power politics, and they paid the price for it. And the Japanese saw what happened to them and did a much better job of responding to the threat posed by the Western powers. But yeah, I think status and prestige is extremely important. Um, and it's actually more important in some ways. Look, Zira Steiner, whose name I already mentioned, terrific diplomatic historian. She wrote a book on the origins of World War I. And she starts the book by making this very interesting observation. She said, you know what? Why did Britain and Germany ever go to war? You know, they're monarchs, we're cousins. Actually, uh, wasn't uh, William Wilhelm the grandson of Queen Victoria? Their elites were uh, you know, very interconnected. Very interconnected. There was a cultural ties. Um, and they didn't have any territorial conflicts. So why did they go to war? It's a war for status and prestige and for who was going to dominate the system and make the rules for the system. And the British was a status quo power. They didn't want to give up what they had. And the Germans felt, well, we're rising. We're actually passing you in terms of material power. You shouldn't be able to hold on to all these perks. So I think that's a great example. And I think you see a lot of that dynamic playing out between the US and China. I mean, what's, what's our position? Oh, we've been the global hegemon since 1945. We like being the global hegemon. How dare anybody challenge us? That's our hegemony. And I think if you're sitting there in the Zhongnanai, you're saying, well, you know, you Americans had your day in the sun. Not like you're going to fade away into nothingness, but you're going to get past. And when you get past, you're going to get past with all that means. Okay, we've got uh, two more people on the list and a uh, little less than 10 minutes. So what I propose, Chris, with your... Take two questions? Yeah, with your permission is we'll take a question from Ben and then a uh, question from Jay Wong and uh, let you have the, uh, the last word. I don't like when Ben asks questions. He has very hard questions. So we ask Ben first and then Jay Wong. Okay. Um, well, you can come up, Jay Wong. Sure. I just, very quickly, putting on, going from the theoretical to the policy realm, Think, thinking about the talk and thinking in general about offshore-balancing and restraint, a lot of the kind of policy um, implications that you mentioned today, um, I'm very sympathetic to the points of getting, getting to the point of offshore-balancing and getting to the point of nuclear proliferation in Japan and South Korea. Um, but getting there is going to be a very crisis-filled time. Uh, and I was curious if you were, if we were to kick out Steve Bannon and Jared Kushner and put Chris Lane into the, into the White House, and we actually follow through on these uh, policies, do you think we would be able to resist jumping back in once these inevitable conflicts break out as the South Koreans start moving towards a nuclear weapon? Or, you know, do you pull out of uh, a commitment to the Baltics or some other scenario along those lines? You know, I think there's a... Let's, let's, okay, let's, let's, yeah, I think my question is also in line with the previous question. So I am the, one of the Seoul-based brokers who is supposed to work closely with uh, the BC-based brokers to 
promote our alliance relationship to uh, enhance the security situation in this region. But your argument and your uh, kind of solutions that you can just address to our region as we want it is kind of withdrawal of the U.S. troops of Korea and allowing Korea to have the nuclear nuclear weapons to counter independently without necessarily relying on to the United States. But uh, having those policies enacted in the, the East Asian region, and given the situation of the North Korea provocation, isn't it that the Korea may uh, be leaning towards China, resulting in the decrease of the hegemon status of the United States in the region and the globe as a whole, without necessarily um, securing the U.S. status uh, in, in, the, or in the other Oh, part of the Thank you. Chris, uh, so I'm going to try and address both your questions. Listen, one of the things I didn't really get to talk about in depth is the problem in Northeast Asia. And I'm going to take a very radical view of this. What's the problem with North Korea? Why does North Korea want nuclear weapons? Right. They want nuclear weapons because they don't feel secure. They haven't felt secure since the Korean War. Uh, they look across the 38th parallel. There's a large deployment of American troops. They look across the Sea of Japan. There's more American forces, air and naval. If you're a small country and you feel threatened, Going nuclear makes a lot of sense to enhance your security. And yeah, they, I think they have enhanced their security in many ways. But we don't like the fact that they have nuclear weapons. I understand that. So how are you going to get out of this situation? You have to make them or do something to make them feel that they don't need, that maybe they can freeze where they are with nuclear weapons. And to me, that means the United States withdraws from the Korean Peninsula. Which also, so why doesn't China do more to pressure North Korea? Because they still remember what happened between 1950 and 1953. They don't want, they don't want a reunified Korea resulting from North Korea's collapse that brings American troops once again to the Yellow River. So the way, in my opinion, I mean, this is too, too smart. There's got to be a flaw in this. The Americans will never do this. But the Americans should withdraw from the Korean Peninsula, try to find ways to make it clear to North Korea that they can freeze without um, their nuclear program, without losing security, and to make it clear to China that we're not going to force the collapse of North Korea. And therefore, the Chinese can play a little bit um, of a more, whoops, a more assertive role. Now, then asked the, the 60, you know, the, I don't know, what's the $64,000 question? It was a game show when I was a kid. It shows you how old I am. Called the $64,000 question. I don't know what that is adjusted for inflation, but it's a lot more than $64,000. Look, can the American system, political system, ever adopt a strategy like restraint or offshore balancing um, voluntarily without being forced by some cataclysmic external reverse to do it? I don't know. I have my doubts. Um, I think there's 
some historical reason to question whether we could do that, since we're talking about Korea. Um, in 1948, the U.S. Joint Chiefs of Staff said that Korea was not important to the U.S. South Korea was not important to the U.S. strategically, and we withdrew our occupation forces. Nobody said that Korea was important. Korea wasn't on anybody's radar map in the Truman administration. And then one day in June 19th, was it June 25th, I believe, 1950, suddenly T-38 tanks start pouring across the 38th parallel. And so what did President Truman say? He said, hey, if they want to get into a mess over there, they've already been fighting a civil war, low-intensity civil war for a couple of years. If they want to escalate it and fight, let them go ahead. Who cares? Not our problem. But that's not what President Truman said. President Truman acted the way American policymakers did. American policymakers don't know any history except they think they know about the 1930s, but actually they don't. But they know all the wrong lessons about, ah, oh, dictators, you can't deal with them. Uh, aggression, you have to stand up to it right at, you know, when it starts. You've got to swat it down. Otherwise, it'll steamroller and the dominoes will fall. So, but, you know, these lessons are part of the American political establishment and foreign policy establishment. So I guess my basic answer to you is I'm very pessimistic. I say that the only way you're ever going to get a real change in American grants are two ways. One is, as I said, to suffer some kind of catastrophic foreign reverse. But you know what? I don't know, was Vietnam catastrophic? I thought it was pretty bad. Was it catastrophic? But, it, you know, it was a big, big reverse. But did American grand strategy change? No. So I don't know. I don't know. It's have to be something worse than Vietnam. Or you get a new foreign policy elite. What are the chances of that? Well, that's what the Koch Foundation is trying to do, right? Is they're trying to create these centers to train people who eventually will become, you know, innovative grand strategic thinkers who will form the core of that. But, you know, I wrote a piece for, um, I can't even remember whether it was the American Conservative or, or the National Interest, but right after the election I said, all these people are worrying that Trump is going to dramatically change American grand strategy. You're wrong. And the reason you're wrong is because even if Trump wants to do that, there's no bureaucracy bureaucracy there to support him. There are no foreign policy experts there to support him. He's on his own. Washington, the Washington establishment isn't going to support that stuff. So you've got to get a new, new establishment. Easier said than done. Well, uh, that's the beauty of uh, being in the academic business. And However, uh, you and I would sign up and volunteer to be part of that new establishment <laughs> if it were actually created. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, uh, on that happy note, <laughs> Let me, uh, first of all, uh, uh, thank Chris uh, for making the uh, long trip up from Not the Brazos trip. River Valley. Um, we've uh, been waiting a long time for you, and uh, you didn't disappoint. And uh, I hope we don't have to wait uh, too long for the uh, book to come out uh, either. And uh, so thanks for a uh, terrific presentation. And uh, please join me in a round of applause for Chris. <laughs> If you'd like to follow the Notre Dame International Security Center seminar series, please visit our website at politicalscience.nd.edu forward slash 
ndisc forward slash or follow us on Twitter at hashtag nd underscore isc. Please note that opinions expressed in the seminar series are solely those of the participants or speakers, not of the International Security Center or the University of Notre Dame, which take no institutional position. Music for this podcast is licensed under Sample Swap.